He had one glass eye, two strong arms, and many championship runs. It's the story of Tom Jenkins. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. We did it. I found the microphone. I plugged it in and I pressed the start button. You found your phone, your computer, your iPad, your Microsoft Zoom, and you also pressed a button. We pressed buttons together at different times across time and space. What the hell am I talking about? What's even happening? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And as always, I am here with my partner in crime, not this specific crime, but many crimes we will not talk about for legal reasons. It's Chongo Bronson. How are you? Allegedly. Capital chap. Yes. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the Hippodrome Express. We're going back in time like we do to, to dig deep into the ethos and the bedrock of pro wrestling history back to the carny roots when it work was a shoot and it, it's going to be a hoot. It will because as we've been doing a lot lately, we're going back to the kind of the pioneer era, if you will. We're going back to kind of retell stories from a different perspective and tell some new stories in that timeline. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about a man who was a superstar at the time, a man who was the foundation of Catch as Catch Can in the early 1900s, the man who challenged Hackenschmidt. And you might be thinking, Nick, you already did a gotch story. Well, no, you dumb son of a bitch. Listen to what I say. Don't cut me off. Don't interrupt me because now we both look like jerks because today we're talking about Tom Jenkins. Tom Jenkins, in context of history as a whole, is... Frank Gotch's greatest rival. People always think of Hackenschmidt and Gotch because they had those two big matches at the end of both of their careers. But over the course of his career, Gotch was primarily chasing Jenkins. So it was those two going back and forth for many years during the prime of their careers. And a lot of people will know Gotch and Hackenschmidt, but not many people know Jenkins and Gotch. So that's a story we're going to be telling. I mean, it is a small part of the story because we're looking at Jenkins' life as a whole, but it's going to be pretty gosh darn exciting. Yeah, it, you know, it, it speaks to numerous things about it. One, like the international flavor with Gotch, Hackensmith, that sort of like component, and then also the name test. But really, it's interesting how one rivalry can be encapsulated to represent a whole era when it wasn't even the greatest rivalry that one of the participants in it had. And before we jump into this, kind of giving the usual disclaimer, um, I'm doing the best I can with the stuff I'm finding. You might listen to this and say, hey, I heard this story this way, or I, I assumed it was this guy doing this to that guy. But this is the fun of researching history from this time, because Heck, even bigger matches, two newspapers in different cities could report two different finishes with two different winners. So you kind of have to put it all together, kind of find the common ground in the Venn diagram of what you hope is sporting truth and put that story forth. There's also some stories, and I'll put disclaimers on them, that I found through third parties and biographies of him that I found, but I had no source material out of his own mouth to back it up. But 
it kind of checks out in the big picture. Um, so we're, again, we're just kind of putting together the best, most thorough story I can put together, kind of through my own det history detective lens. Um, and I think it's as complete as hopefully anybody could make it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's pro wrestling cold case, old chap. And it's like, you know, imagine 100 years from now, they're having to, like, piece together uh, AEW, like, house show based on a Cornet review and, like, a Meltzer review and kind of amalgamate the two, right? That's that is, sort of and that's actually do. a very good comparison sometimes because, yeah, reporting was... Sometimes a sports writer would literally be like, I have to be back on the uh, the last train at Chattanooga, so I'm just stopping the article here and I'm going home. I feel like this guy probably won at the end and I'm just going to go with that. No one's ever going to know. No one's going to call me on my bullshit until today. Yes, that's awesome because that actually happened more than, more than the train schedule cares to admit. Um, so yeah, I'd also want to thank some of the people who have been sending in research donations, Lydia, Steve, and Punchy McPuncherson, uh, good handle, don't know your real name. If that is your real name, congratulations slash my condolences, but we thank you anyway. Anything helps, you know, I, I do have to pay for a lot of these archives I dig through. Books are not free unless you grab them from the, your Barnes & Noble and you can sprint past the nerd working at the counter. I'm not saying do that, but I'm not not saying it. Yeah, and you know, at, at this age, you, you know, we gotta worry about your recovery after a sprint like that, man. You know, then we're talking about eyes, you gotta get you some Flexol 454, you know, this is an expensive process to get this research material. Nerds. Yep, so we're just glad a couple bucks trickle in every now and so then. Thank it means, you, thank you. Yeah, it means thank the world you. to us. You keep us going. Your number one source in sports edutainment. Oh, see what I did there? I think we're both in timeout. We both have to wait in the car. This episode will now just be dead air while we uh, feel ashamed of ourselves. So we're going to jump into it. We're going to start talking about Tom Jenkins, who was born August 3rd, 1872 in Bedford, Cuyahoga County, Ohio. The son of Thomas and Mary, both from Wales. I found a few stories about Thomas working a mining operation in Russia and coming home to find his first wife and their children dead from the Great Potato Famine. Later, he and Mary had three daughters that died young in Scotland, as did a son in England, before they took their remaining children, two sons, to the U.S., where they settled down in Ohio and started round three of a family. Um, again, that came from a biography I found about him, um, but good Lord, that is a very 18, you know, mid-1800s story to tell. No, totally. Like, how many times did they restart the Oregon Trail with that family getting them in place? I didn't realize it started over in, in Wales and ended, ended in Ohio. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like I said, you, you look at those little tragedies, like they say yeah. potato famine, and it, it's kind of like the, uh, the Opium War, where it's so misleading in its title and who the bad guys are that you almost can turn it into a joke. But when you know England pretty much put their economic boot on Ireland, people died horrible, horrible deaths. We're starting off a little dark here. I promise you it gets a little lighter, but history is not always a fun adventure. And especially when you talk about the history and sort of the origin story of, of champions, the, the, the level of will 
and like determination that it takes to, to be a cut above the other premier competitors at the time. Like you gotta have some like fightful level tragedy origin story shit in your background to like get that edge, man. And like all kids, he was adventurous and had zero capacity for risk assessment. I know when I was a kid, uh, I'm surprised I didn't die of tetanus, drowning, falling off of things, of being eaten by dogs. There were, you know, when you're a kid in, even in like a small town in the late 80s, early 90s, like I was, there was so much adventure to nearly die from every weekend. So you send that back almost a century, it exponentially gets worse. Yeah, especially when he's probably a maniac, you know what I mean? That is a, a great way to say it, like a, what was it, non-functioning threat assessment capability or whatever. That's, that's pretty accurate for guys that end up being total savages. But at least I didn't do anything like this. When he was eight years old, he and his friends were disappointed with a rainy 4th of July. On the 5th, they tried to dry out the firework powder by putting it in a small iron cannon and lit a fire under it well uh happy fifth of july i guess that's the take two i mean did, did they get a good did they get a party they were expecting well as you can imagine the result was rather explosive it blew up right there his right eye was blown out and he spent months in a dark room slowly recovering from the missing eye severe burns broken jaw and a lot of like puncture from shrapnel in his chest what a fucking badass he just like blew himself up tony stark style when he's like seven years old yeah that's i mean you think about just like and like the medicine and everything at that time there's no antibiotics really and like the kind of like he's like he got out of that yeah, he, I mean, you think about the damage that did in pre-antibiotic America. Uh, he literally spent months just in a dark room, just recovering. You know, his, his one good eye was still damaged, so it wasn't exactly a good eye. And this is when he is seven years old. You think about the post-traumatic stress you get from that, how damaged and weird you become because of something like that. I can't even imagine. He would wear a glass eye, and I've read that he would take it out when he would get to the ring. However, I found no first-hand accounts of this. Media throughout his life would also claim his eye was burned out by a splash of hot iron while working in the metalworks, or that it was gouged out in a match, sometimes by Frank Gotch. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do have to say, if you're a worker and you've legitimately lost an eye, you kind of have the right to play with how that happened and, and kind of kayfabe it a little bit based on the necessity of the situation, I would think. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Zach Gowen from formerly of WWE, a good pal of mine. He's been on my show in the past. He'll, he's missing a leg, so he comes to the ring wearing a prosthetic leg and then takes it off, holds it up over his head, and then jumps into the ring and wrestles without his leg. Because, again, a glass eye is a... Is, is something you put in for the sake of appearance, you sure as shit don't go into the ring for a potentially brutal match wearing a piece of glass inside your head. Yeah, dude, that's, oh, dude, it makes me think of Bizbang. It makes me think of like so many other guys that have come across that were blind. Um, Frazier being blind in the one eye, you know, it just shows that like, you don't necessarily need to be able to see to see. 
Yeah, um, my right eye is bad um, from scar tissue on the, the cornea and lens from a big elbow I took in train. You know, we were training a guy for an MMA fight, and it was just a freak boop, but cracked my eye socket, knocked me out, fucked up my eye, and I had two fights after that. When looking back on things, I realized I had about a twenty percent dead spot in my right in my right eye. But uh, we're not always smart people; those of us who get in a ring. Yeah, let alone the kind of maniac that gets in there after he loses an eye at seven for deciding to dry off some fireworks at an open flame. And like I said, his remaining eye wasn't exactly in great shape after the accident, so his formal education came to a screeching halt. He became a Cleveland street kid, passing his time with pranks, shoplifting, and getting arrested for both. He was just a, he was just such a little scamp. Dude, just a carny in the making, bro. He's like a little uh, uh, Bugsy Malone running the streets. He earned money as a railroad water and spike boy, so he was just running pails of waters and spikes to up and down the uh, the tracks for the workers, making a little money right there. Not a bad gig if you could get it at that age. Beats the hell out of a paper route. And especially, like, impressive to run on train tracks, like, blind. Like you got it that he's practicing the art of the blind ninja even at this early age. And as a teen, he began working in steel mills. Working as a rougher, this job would be two men using heavy tongs to carry white hot 100 pound pieces of steel for 14 hours a fucking day. It was brutal with intensely hot working conditions with machines being fed practically molten metal through steel rollers that could kill a man if he lost his focus for even a moment. So focus, strength, and nimble feats seems like a great prerequisite for being a wrestler. So in our pre-OSHA days, yeah, you would be working 14 hours a day, nonstop carrying literally white hot metal with tongs to put into a machine where if it caught your you know, your overall strap would suck you in for a closed casket burial. Yeah, Conan the Barbarian didn't have a, a better accidental workout slavery routine than that, man. I mean, like, think about the isometric squeeze of using, like, some tongs like that. I mean, that guy's bear hug must have been, you could imagine his just like continuous compression he's like a boa constrictor yeah like point. like the the core strength like the way that would like compress your upper pecs and your yeah. lats and your upper and your, oh. and your shoulders yeah that will turn you into a physical specimen because i have a feeling they weren't getting like a proper break every every three hours either so yeah you think about how tired you are doing your job after like four hours i know i am Think about doing that for 14 hours where any margin of error would most likely end your life. Yeah, basically you have to keep a, a like chest squeeze as hard as you can, as accurately as you can on a body for 14 hours a day or you die. That's a pretty good uh, sort of uh, wax on, wax off pre-training for being a wrestler. Yeah, because we always talk about the, the farm boys, how they have that immense strength and work ethic similar for these guys who worked steel working in factories because again they were working 12 14 hour days very physical Miners death and dismemberment yeah death and dismemberment if you if things go wrong so it makes you strong focused aware and determined yeah and just 
kind of probably grumpy too. I would imagine it would give you a bit of a sour puss. Oh yeah, I can't like my my attitude would be very bad. I would quit after like the first like the first tour, like the new hire tour. Like here is everything you need to do. It's like I am just gonna do crimes. I'm sorry. I'm like when's payday? I'm gonna come back and stick up some of your guys. I I just can't do this. Yeah, exactly, man. That is a that is a rough racket, bro. Like you're just basically hired to squeeze things like your life depended on it for 12 hours a day. Man, uh, that's I, again, though, I can only imagine what that did to that guy's grip strength and his ability to utilize that in a uh, wrestling capacity. Jenkins became an amateur wrestler while working in rolling mills in Cleveland. He was 18 and, and at a benefit for an injured worker that featured wrestling. The opponent for Al Wood didn't show up, so the rest of the mill workers convinced him to give it a go, and he took the experienced grappler to a draw. After that, he began training with Luke Lamb in Cleveland, and this was all still while working his day job, and would wrestle and perform feats of strength. The mill manager paid for him to take three lessons a week. So think about this chain of events. You know, he's just a big, strong guy, and there's a wrestling match that's supposed to happen at a benefit. Somebody doesn't show up. And I'm sure, you know, again, we always talk about how in these days, everybody grew up learning a little boxing and a little wrestling. Everybody was just wrestling because, you know, you don't even need a ball for it. It's an easy sport to do when it's just a bunch of rowdy kids and you know you don't even have a baseball bat or a uh, you know or, or or a soccer ball. So he went up there, technically untrained, and took a pro to the time limit based on his physical attributes by himself. And then he was becoming a performing strongman because typically from that carnival tradition to at that point, a strongman wrestler was one job doing two different tasks. So he would do his feats of strength and then he would wrestle and. The, I really found that impressive that the mill manager was paying for his lessons. But at the same time, he was doing this while still working probably 12, 14-hour days in a goddamn foundry. Yeah, I mean, on the, like, if you want to look at it in, like, the most positive potential light, that might have been, like, the first sponsorship. Yeah, I mean, it was something very right? similar to that because... But I just think about that. God damn it. Like, I remember, like, when I was young, and it'd be like, oh, man, time to go. Time to go train for a couple hours at night. I'm pretty tired, though. I worked retail for seven hours. Like, no, fuck me. But um, the, other, the other option, though, and maybe this is a little bit more realistic, since he got pushed into it by the boys at the, at the work, at the job, you know what I'm saying? Maybe his boss made a little scratch off of him off some bets, and he thought, if I get my boy... My boy hustling. Oh yeah, I can no. make some money on the backside, and it was oh, like that a is a an investment. Yeah, that was a big part of wrestling at that time because you know, in order to you know really kind of travel and do these things, you often needed a backer to put down a thousand dollars as the guarantee of you showing up, and then they would clean up on the betting. So you know, they you had to have people who legitimately believed in you, and then in turn, you couldn't let them down. Yeah, so, and he's like, yes, now you're going to die or you're going to lose your job. If you lose this match, you like, that's a, that, you know, it's, it, it, either way, it's a fascinating dynamic with the, with the work now backing him financially. And he was just a, you know, an up-and-comer, a regional wrestler. 
in that type of, you know, the saloons, the uh, the theaters in the area, um, until his first truly big match that I could find anyway, on October 16th, 1897, as reported in the San Francisco Call the next day. Title of the article, Farmer Burns the Loser, reports San Francisco Call. Wow, that's, a, uh, I'm shocked. If I saw that headline, you'd take my money right away. I did not expect that headline. So in Cleveland, Farmer Burns failed to throw Jenkins twice in one hour at the Star Theater. So it was one of those, like, you have to beat me a certain amount of time in an hour type of handicap match. Jenkins broke every hold the American champ could put him in. Afterwards, Jenkins challenged Burns for a title shot. Burns declined the offer. He wanted none of that for a to-a-finish rematch. So Jenkins walked in there against, you know, the American champ, Farmer Burns, the legend, and gave him absolute hell. You know, it was a, I gotta throw this local bum twice in an hour, no problem, and he couldn't frickin' do it. Jenkins was escaping everything he put him in, and then is like, hey man, let's do this to a finish. And you really gotta be uh, presenting some danger for the champion, Farmer Burns, to go, ah, uh, I'm busy that day. Well, I didn't say what day. I'm definitely busy that day. <laughs> yeah, that is remarkable, especially nerds you know when you listen back to the different episodes where we've talked about farmer burns farmer burns was a old school barnstorming you know okie dokie motherfucker who would get he would come in there to be the stick to grapple the wrestlers in the ring that were calling out the marks and you got to be a bad man to be that guy and if he's backing down that was some serious business he must have just got in there and if you have any questions about Farmer Burns and his story, scroll down in our episodes. We did an episode just about him you know, over a year ago, and it's a fascinating story. And Jenkins really didn't have much time to publicly call him out or chase a title shot because on October 26, 1897, Farmer Burns loses the title to Dan McLeod in their match in Indianapolis. So now Dan McLeod is the new champ. He is the top of the heap. He is the, the guy with the target on his back. And Jenkins is right there wanting to tap him on the shoulder. Yeah, that's a, oh, that would be a tough one because he tasted it. He probably, he felt like he had, a, he had the champ in his sights and somebody else got the kill before he did. And that's, but what a, what a confidence boost that's got to be at that stage in the game. It's very much like the end of the first Rocky movie. where he, exactly Yeah, that. where you take yeah. the champ to the utmost limits. You know, you don't win, but you didn't really lose. And then, you know, you the ain't getting wants, a rematch. Yeah, the champ wants <laughs> no more of that. It's, he's all wrong for us, baby. I've seen that man get hit and keep coming forward. At some point in 1898, Tom Jenkins married his wife, Anna Lavinia Gray, originally from England. He also took on Harry Pollock as his manager, who was the first honest representative for his career. He kept having kind of like the small town friends, the family. You know, it's always so hard to find somebody to trust as you're taking off who will either not fuck it up for you or not rip you off. And that happened a lot before Harry Pollock was in charge of his career. New York Times, April 14th, 1898, Yusuf and Jenkins. They are matched to wrestling in Cleveland on May 4th. 
William A. Brady, representing the Terrible Turk, Yusuf Ismail, and Jenkins manager Gus Hill, arranged a match between the two men for 1,000 aside, two out of three falls. First in Greco-Roman, second in Catches Catch Can, third in the style chosen by whomever wins the first match, and the contract states the ring will be 22 feet with ropes. So the terrible Turk, Yusuf Ismail, a guy who's been dancing in and out of our entire series from our probably our third or fourth episode with Evan Strangler Lewis. So the terrible Turk was a Ottoman wrestler who turned into a big star in Paris and was brought to the U.S. much in like an Andre the Giant role where he was this enormous foreigner who Ooh, could just... Yeah who was just crushing everybody. So it was equal parts combat sport, equal parts sideshow, freak show, but either way, it put butts in seats. Yeah, and it was like the prototype for the sort of like, you know, monster foreign menace heel. Like, you know, whether you're talking about like the, the uh, you know, Krusha Khrushchev and those guys, like the, the Russians back then, or, you know, there's been so many iterations of that. But the terrible Turk, just bringing that gimmick in, and he's facing him in his hometown, setting it up two out of three. I'm excited to see what kind of what kind of booking they got cooking. So it went down on May 4th, 1898. Tom Jenkins versus the terrible Turk, two out of three falls there in Cleveland. Yusuf got the first fall in one hour and one minute. Greco-Roman rules, holy shit. The second in 11 minutes. Jenkins claimed it was off a foul, but the ref ignored his complaints. Quote, the decision caused a vigorous protest from the crowd, according to the Cincinnati Enquirer two days later. Quote, Tom Jenkins and Ismail Yusuf wrestled tonight before the largest audience that has ever attended a wrestling match here. In the first fall, Ismail kept going after Jenkins' neck, then switching to a hammerlock that Jenkins kept escaping. The two men went through the ropes repeatedly, and at one point had Jenkins pinned off the mat, and, quote, the Turk would not let him go until the interpreter had howled at him. During the second fall, quote, the Turk repeatedly forced Jenkins off the mat and finally held him with his neck on the boards. The referee and interpreter were unable to get him to let go. Jenkins claimed a foul, and when it was not allowed, refused to go on. The referee, L.D. Elridge of Rochester, awarded the match to Yusuf amidst great confusion. So, a lot again to unpack there. So, I like the, you know, the amidst great confusion. What a nice way to say the crowd was probably ready to commit some crimes. Oh, yeah, that's what that was. I did not see that coming. The, the hometown babyface going down 2 nothing. That, especially if that, if... It was smelling like a shoot, but if that second finish was done correctly and intentionally where it looked like a fucked up foul that they didn't call and they did that to set it up, that's some good shit either way. And that's what I feel. Like, we talked about it um, repeatedly. Um, I did a solo episode about the Terrible Turk you can listen to where almost all of his American matches had dirty finishes of one way or the other. And dirty finishes with a heel in wrestling is the bread and butter of keeping a baby face strong in defeat. So it was a situation where he lost the endless struggle in Greco-Roman rules, which was probably a shoot because Greco-Roman takes fucking forever if there's no time limits like that. But for the 
fouling and the off the mat and you know the the manager or the interpreter yelling at them and then Jenkins claiming it was a foul and refusing to go on because he's just being the victim of these fouls and the crowd nearly rioting that oh, there's like a word for it it's on the tip of my tongue oh wait could it be a hippodrome so yeah that's kind of where I'm going with that one yeah I, I concur good sir because I mean Talk about getting the baby face over in the hometown, because here's the thing, guys, when you talk about the guy, the baby face is the proxy. You have to get the audience to like vicariously take care about that person, whether it's Ricky Morton or Stone Cold. It's like they want to fight on that person's behalf. They care about that person's struggle and they are getting behind their hometown hero off of this fucky angle. Him getting screwed before he had a fair chance to get back on his rule set. That is actually a really good... If you're doing that to start a long-term program, you're starting it nice and you're leaving yourself plenty of build there. That's great. Yeah, especially when you have somebody like the Terrible Turk who's only doing, you know, a couple months worth of matches and then going back to Europe or back to the Ottoman Empire. And you have to keep that guy a hot draw but you also have to keep the people he leaves behind intact. So you can't just have the traveling monster come in and kill everyone dead and then disappear back over the hills. Conversely, you can't have him come in and lose, 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 lose because about halfway through that tour, no one's going to want to see him because they're going to see a spry athletic American wrestler take on this gigantic you know, beast of an ottoman. So you have to both protect your baby faces and also protect your heels drawing power. So I feel that was really smart booking. Yeah, especially because the goal is to get the people to buy the rematch. Like my guy could have got the job done if the heel hadn't done X bullshit, right? And that's the trick, because then they believe that, okay, this next one, my guy is going to get it done, and that's how you build for the rematch and draw a bigger house. And it sounds like they're doing a great job of that with this. Oh, yeah, and then that, and that would continue all the way through his final match against Evan Lewis, where uh, there is the story that Evan Lewis doubled, uh, doubled down and screwed over the Terrible Turk. But you know what? Listen to the episode about the Terrible Turk to hear that story. Moving on. In the October 9th New York Times, it was announced that Tom Jenkins would take on Holly Adlai on Saturday, November 5th, 1898. $1,000 aside, quote, and a division of the net receipts, the winner to take 75% and the loser 25%. Why is any promoter offering the whole of the receipts? Unknown, unless he knew who to bet on. That would be the, yeah, that would be the first one, you know, and then second, it might not be the whole thing. There's a little skim off the top, a little here, a little there, a little promoter magic everywhere. You can never trust a carny. But yeah, that's a pretty, um, when they used to talk about, back in the day, they used to talk about like the winner's share of the purse was on the line. I missed that when they would be setting that up and explaining that that was like one of the things that they were competing for in those matches. Because imagine the difference between getting, you know, Money for, you know, bologna or steak, basically, is the difference. And you can see that that would motivate these guys and help sell it as a real competition. Yeah, because that's what we saw in boxing as well. If you listen to our Parson Davies series, most of these fights would have a 1,000 to the loser, 5,000 to the winner. The 
the payout discrepancy was so enormous that it really made you think these guys are going to try to kill each other because nobody wants to walk away with 20% of what the winner got. Yeah, it's very, very um, believable in, in selling it to a mainstream audience. Like, oh, this guy's getting, you know, if, the, if it's a big pot and the winner gets the most of it, those are some stakes that are easily relatable and you can understand that the if you believe that that money's on the line, you believe that those guys are going to do anything it takes to win it. So Tom Jenkins versus the Sultan's Lion, Holly Adlai, at Madison Square Garden in front of 3,000 people, according to the New York Times. Quote, instead of seeing a wrestling match, however, they witnessed sprinting races. The Turk tried to get hold of Jenkins, but Jenkins would run away from him all the time. The crowd jeered and hooted, called Jenkins a coward, and said all he seemed to think about was keeping out of the Turk's way. Jenkins won the first on a weird technical foul. The Turk stopped chasing him and took a towel from his quarterman to dry his head. Jenkins' quarterman pointed out to the ref that this was a foul, since according to the rules, neither man could refresh themselves or use a towel until a fall was concluded. <laughs> what in the name of a money incorporated technicality finish is this, man? It's such a, it's like a fucking bug. Like I, I'm picturing this like a Bugs Bunny. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, it's just him getting on the bicycle and just sprinting away from this giant Turk for the entirety of the fall until the the Turk, this giant Turk is like, you know, what? It goes over and takes a towel and like. You know, dries his head, and the other guy's like, "Gotcha, that's a foul." And the referee had to be like, "Fuck, I guess you're right. Damn it, dude. That was that, that's almost like proto Guerrero, like stage the thing. Like that's just, yeah, it's Looney Tune prop comedy finish, man. It's preposterous." In the second fall, the much larger Adelaide caught Jenkins' wrist threw him and put all 300-plus pounds of his frame on top of Jenkins until his shoulders were down. Jenkins was carried out by his attendants, and the match declared a draw. So, so he didn't think that last fall was too funny then, did he? I, and it's just such a... It's, was it a weird work? Was this planned somehow? Or the natural end of a freak show match? Because this... It would make a certain amount of sense to draw things out and make it like a kind of like a real rile up the crowd type of thing. And then Jenkins almost working heel gets his comeuppance. But the whole but it really that first fall just made every made him look like an asshole and made his opponent look like a moron. And I can't imagine any paying customer being happy with that. So they had to like make it kind of a brutal finish with him being crushed and then being carried out on a stretcher. Yeah, I don't know if that was a, if it was a plan, if it was a work, it was, it was like them going too far, right? They, 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 they went too far, uh, and, but I could potentially see it where like, if he was like, oh my God, what am I going to do against this big guy? And he's running, and he's gunning, and the guy technically broke the rules for a second, being like, hey man, but I could also see where they thought that that would be a clever out. Yeah, where yeah, where it's because sometimes in wrestling you come up with what you think is a fun idea and it's stupid as shit in the wrong way. So it could be that it could be him just being like, okay, against the terrible Turk, I made the mistake of trying to engage 
you know, immediately and trying to just wear down the uh, the giant, much bigger opponent physically through wrestling. So I'm going to make the Sultan's Lion chase me for a while to wear him out before we actually start wrestling. Not entertaining, but sometimes, as you used to see back in early MMA, when you'd have you know, a 160 pound striker being chased by a, you know, six foot eight, 350 pound monster. It was just, it was just let him run after me until he's gassed and then I'll start leg kicking him. Yeah, I, I just pictured like the first two minutes of Houston Alexander versus Kimbo Slice. We <laughs> just circled the cage like nonstop to where it was like, it was almost like, what do you do? It was comical. It didn't make sense for the fight. It's like he's running and running and running. But I mean, I could see that he was on paper how that could sound like a good idea, right? Like we're gonna try to get this three hundred pounder to chase us, and like we're gonna tell that story until he's so tired out that he makes it. Tech. That I don't know. That's just a, that's a that fell flat, my friend. I would imagine. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that audience was into it, but yeah, I can't imagine they were. That's so. Yeah, like I feel like if it was a work, it's like the first like circus trick type thing. The crowd didn't appreciate it, so they called an audible and just had him get fucking flattened just to make the crowd leave happy. Who knows? Maybe it was a shoot. Maybe it was a work. Either way, it's goofy as hell. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting because, I mean, one recipe for heat is to, like, get him to stop laughing and then make him stop. Or get him, get him laughing at you and then make him stop laughing. And they kind of were going for that, but I don't know if this was... I don't know, maybe this is the start of the comedy spots that, that have, have gone. I don't know, this is a pretty funny spot. Yeah, again, it's like I picture it like in black and white footage, yeah. being sped up in the footage, and like the Benny Hill music playing in the background. I was wondering if he was like, just saw a Chaplin, like silent film of him doing something like this. He's like, you know, I could probably pull that spot off. Oh man, Chaplin, that was way too early for Chaplin. November 21st, 1898, the Indianapolis News covered the mixed rules match, two out of three falls between Tom Jenkins and Tom Cannon. Cannon was an English Greco-Roman legend who was of the last big stars of Greco-Roman in England as Catch's Catch Can grew to dominate the scene. While only five years older than Jenkins, five years as a traveling wrestler is like 20 in normal person time. It's like it's like dog years you know if you're if you're a traveling wrestler in the late 1800s every year is like seven yeah i mean just think about the the shelf life of a modern athlete and how condensed the timetable of your professional career is compared to like your actual life typically you know the, the span is so short and then multiply that by like again like little house on the prairie conditions right and you're not gonna have a, a very it's amazing these guys had the careers as long as they did Oh, absolutely. And in this match, Cannon dominated Jenkins in the Greco-Roman round to no surprise. If you're primarily a catch guy and you get tied up in Greco-Roman rules and you can't grab the legs, good luck. Blessed be, however you want to look at it. You're, uh, you're going to have a tough night even if you uh, do have the skills to hold your own. In the second, under Catch's Catch Can, Jenkins came roaring back with the win. And this, in the third, it was also Catch's Catch Can. So he won the third fall, two out of three. He won the match. Cannon said he hadn't competed in Catch's Catch Can for five years and was feeling rusty. And while that may sound like an excuse, 
trust me, if you could be competing in one form of grappling every weekend for five years and then try a different rule set that you're not used to anymore, and you're going to get smoked. Oh, yeah. Even something as subtle as like gi or no gi jiu-jitsu, where you're even kind of doing the same rule set, but just with a slight modification. Those things can really throw your game off. And the more you do, you specialize in one thing, the more it affects you when you vary from that one thing. Yeah, I mean, even if you're used to a gi jiu-jitsu rules, you know, then you travel over to judo and some people will be like, oh, it's just jiu-jitsu tournament, but with like more emphasis on throws. It's not, you know, you have a lot more different point system. You can't do air chokes. Uh, there's a lot of tactics that are forbidden. Uh, you, you, you know, falls actually count, you know, when you pin shoulders down, it's a different thing. So yeah, you, you can take essentially the same body mechanics, the gi, everything that like on paper looks the same, be a tweak the rules just a little bit and it can be, uh, it can be completely out of your element. Yeah. And then you take it as far as the difference between uh, catch and Greco. Those are almost two, the two most dissimilar styles of wrestling. One is about going after every limb and submissions, and one is about upper body only and takedowns, and then pinning combinations. So they're very, very much the like fire and water. December twenty second, eighteen eighty nine, versus George Bothner. The New York Times reported a near riot after the match. The handicap match, due in part to Jenkins weighing nearly fifty pounds more than Bothner required Jenkins to throw him four times in one hour. Things got heated when Jenkins got the third fall via a three-quarter Nelson hold, but many claimed Bothner's shoulders weren't both on the mat, and that referee Tom Sharkey, described as the sailor pugilist, Sharkey was a boxer known for a brawling style who fought men like Jim Corbett and James Jeffries, counted it as a fall. It ended up not mattering. The third fall was at the 55 minute, 52 second mark. So Bothner was able to hold off Jenkins to the one hour mark and be declared the winner. Immediately after Bothner had his hand raised, several people entered the ring, including ex-boxer and Bothner's wrestling trainer, Billy Elmer. They rushed referee Sharkey and, a and threw punches. The cops were on hand and broke it up before it got too wild. Whoa, that was a swear if I didn't expect. The ref got jumped. Yeah, which makes sense as their target of ire. But, you know, the ex-boxer who was in Bothner's corner runs and throws punches on Sharky, who at the time was like a really dangerous fighter. Like he was very well known, a known quantity, a top guy. And he just comes in throwing bombs on the referee. Shit goes wild. The police have to run in and stop it. That's some good shit. I like that angle. <laughs> Sometimes the best, uh, the best work is just uh, on the fly, darling. And it's one of those things you have to once again wonder, was this just a really stupid fit of rage or really good heat booking? Yeah, I don't know, because that could be really good heat booking, but man, I could just see somebody come, you know, you see it from time to time, like look at the Khabib finish with McGregor, where sometimes people have had enough and there's stuff from behind the scenes and they just start swinging. I guess it depends on, did they get a rematch out of it, darling? Yeah, and it's also, you have to think about the time, you know, this is, 
This is 18, you know, this is the end of the 1800s. This is the turn of the new millennium. This is still a much rougher time than how we think of things today. And their guy won. Yeah. <laughs> their guy won. That's the coolest part about it. Yeah, so it was it, it was absolute madness. madness. I, my my leaning is it was a uh, you know a pre-planned thing, but there was plenty of room for uh, plenty of wiggle room on that opinion. Yeah, I mean I'm not sure, but either way, what a party, man! It's like, I, dude. I mean, imagine if he had lost. That corner would have been sour. July 2nd, 1899, the Anaconda Standard hyping the Ernest Rober versus Tom Jenkins match on the 4th of July in Cleveland. The author expected Jenkins to win, but that it won't be easy. Quote, while no bets of importance have as yet been announced, there have been any number of small sums wagered at even money. The big bettors will hold off until they have a chance to learn the condition of the men. So, that's a great way to really to really kind of hype it as being a clash of titans where these men are so evenly matched nobody's willing to make a bet until like pretty much the last minute let's make sure they show up in shape let's make sure nobody gets hurt because any variable could cost you everything yeah i mean that's that's what they call uh cooking a point spread in uh betting talk and that's why that's not legal in in vegas these days but because that is how you cook the books and they can set up and set a betting swing either way off of that. Because the later you, you reveal the line, the more people are pressured to bet. That's, that's a cold tactic. And if you know the name Ernst Rober only from the show, you would remember him as being kind of the protege of William Muldoon. He was his hand-picked heir to the championship because Muldoon being William Muldoon didn't drop the belt on the way out. He retired as the champion, wouldn't do business that way, but pretty much said, this guy, he's now the top guy. He's my hand-picked guy, which is fine for the hype out of the gate, but at some point you got to back it up. And he had to back it up against Evan the Strangler Lewis. And it didn't exactly go his way. You can hear it in our Evan Lewis series. You can also hear it in our Parson Davies series. That eventually, you know, you could be anointed from above. But when you step onto the mat, that means Jack with a side of shit. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's very interesting because the way that he did that was so... I hate that. I hate that so much. Like, I'm so good... Then I'm just going to retire, and, and whoever I decide is the next best guy is now the champ. But really what it is is here, I don't want to take the L, and the Wolves are at the gate, so you you hold on to this for us. And then if if we lose it, it you lost it, and I, my reputation stays clean. And that is the ultimate, like, how many times did Shawn Michaels pull that? Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting sidetracked. Yeah, hate that shit. On July 5th, the Buffalo Courier covered that 4th of July match with Cleveland Iron Worker defeats Ernest Rober, which is a weird way to be described. He's an established enough wrestler at this point, but they're calling him the Cleveland Iron Worker, and that wasn't his gimmick name. He's the common man. So on the 4th of July, Jenkins had the hometown advantage over Rober, beating him in two straight falls, 29 minutes, 15 seconds, and 15 minutes, 4 seconds. 
Again, Rober was the hand-picked heir of William Muldoon, but once again, that didn't mean a thing against a top-notch opponent. There are some variables, because Rober was primarily a Greco-Roman guy. He was a Greco-Roman wrestler competing under Catch's Catch Can. So yes, when you are a Greco-Roman champion, you can be the toughest man in the Greco under Greco-Roman rules, and you face a guy who is inferior to you in every single way, except he has a killer single leg takedown, and guess how that's going to go. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the superior availability of repertoire. It's like a boxer versus a kickboxer. One guy might be, you might be a better boxer, but that guy has more weapons than you do. He has more available tactics and strategy and body parts that he can use both offensively and of yours to attack. So, you know, it's just, you're, you're playing against someone that has a more sophisticated rule set to utilize. And also they're trying to submit you at the same time, not just pin. So there's, it's just, you're, it's like checkers versus chess kind of. It is because I don't want to take away the technical aspect of Greco-Roman. No, not at all. But it also is a very core strength, strength leverage, it's, it, there is a lot more strength required for Greco-Roman than there is for catches catch can kind of like how, you know, kind of how jiu-jitsu works, where it's a lot of it is more based on leverage and grip position. There's more, you know, more of a scientific uh, angle to it as opposed to I got underhooks and I now have to kind of wait, wait out your conditioning until I can suck you in. Yeah, and it's just, it doesn't attack anything below the waist. In that way, it's like boxing, right? There's so many things that are available in a fight that catches catch can allows that Greco does not. You know, whether you talk about, like you said, the ankle pick or a submission hold, there are di it's just a different philosophy of grappling, and it really just gives you more tools to utilize than a, a Greco wrestler does because the agreed battle between two Greco guys, there's so many parts of wrestling that are off the table. You're not changing levels. You're not shooting. You're not going below their center of gravity. It's like two bucks locking horns, right? It's kind of that sort of style. And it's almost like sumo in that way. And it's very limiting when you're talking about a guy who can like roll into a leg lock. August 25th, 1899, beats Ed Atherton in a match noteworthy for brutality and shit-talking. Atherton ripped body shots on Jenkins at the tie-up, and Jenkins threw elbows at the face. So we're already off to a hot start on this story. So oh uh, for, for the, those of you who uh, might not know this in legitimate grappling competition, throwing body shots and elbows kind of frowned upon. Yeah, it's definitely not only illegal, it's dirty pool, but it's also kind of like, oh, you want to throw it, you know, like in anything, right? In baseball. You want to throw your throw at my batter's head? I'm going to throw at your batter's head. You want to hit my quarterback after the whistle? I'm going to hit your quarterback after the whistle. You want to throw blows in the clinch? I'm going to throw blows in the clinch. And that's what, you know, I I bet that was not, a, I mean, I would be excited to see what happened off of that because that sounds like a proper receiving game with the elbow. Yeah, and they were getting mouthy too because while eating those elbows, Atherton told the ref, I'm game, I'll stay, and sarcastically called Jenkins strongman while fighting for holds. Ooh. <laughs> like, oh, that all you got, strongman? Like, oh, man, that's that's so good. Atherton asked Jenkins, tracing... <laughs> Atherton asked Jenkins, 
training for a prize fight, eh? After eating another strike to the face. Damn, this fool is clowning. I I like it though. I like it. He hit him and then he talked shit off the receipt. But yeah, it's a, he, he took one in the mouth and kept talking. That's a that's a uh, gumptionist motherfucker. The Buffalo Enquirer took a dig at the state of wrestling when describing the match as, quote, a program of sport to Buffalonians which, if advertised six years ago, would have turned away thousands at prices four times as much as these men asked for last night. And that, quote, they were greeted with a house which noticeably only for the absence of people and the nakedness of seats. So what a flowery way to say that you know what, maybe a few years ago this would have uh, done better business, but nobody showed up for this shit show. Yeah, that sucks, especially when you're talking about getting dunked on by Buffalonians. Ugh, lowercase. After Jenkins won the first fall, quote, the wrestlers agreed to wait 15 minutes after the fall, and the rest of the crowd went out to the many bars in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Ending with, quote, the crowd wandered home discussing the failure of a championship wrestling like that of last night to attract a crowd of sporting men, and the old-timers shook their head and sighed for the days that were past. Odd, considering the Buffalo Courier claimed that the attendance was the largest ever seen in a wrestling contest in Buffalo, so who the hell knows? Again, you can get two different papers covering the same match and get completely different stories out of it. So either it was like a half-drawn bust or a packed house. Either way, the crowd didn't seem to give two shits about it, and the match was just a little bit, a uh, little bit of brutality and shit talking. <laughs> so after the first fall, they just like went out to like go hit the bar, and then the bar's like, "Wait, where are you going?" And they went to the other bars. And they didn't even come back for the finish. That is hilarious. Yep, and uh, yeah, it's that's wrestling, baby. And Buffalonians. On September sixth, eighteen ninety nine, after Ernest Rober defeated George Burlingame in Baltimore, the Baltimore Sun, uh, George Tuhui secured a match for Jenkins against the resurging Rober for the following month. Um, I really didn't find any information on that match. It might not have happened. It might have just been so inconsequential that, you know, I just couldn't find anything about it. Who knows? But it kind of does give you a picture of who the top guys were around the turn of the century. Yeah, and I think it's also, it's a cool illustration for everyone listening that, like, sometimes these these archives are incomplete and sometimes, the, you know, the rabbit hole does have a little turnoff that has an ending, you know? It's not all this stuff is just out there and available. So I appreciate all the digging you do. However, don't let it happen again. November 1st, 1899, from the Pittsburgh Press, George Toohey, Jenkins' manager, arrived in Pittsburgh on Wednesday to finalize Jenkins' appearance on Friday at the Old City Hall building, where he is contracted to throw any three local men in one hour, or will down any man the club provides twice in one hour. Which is one hell of a challenge, because you think about if this is a shoot, like a lot of these were for these type of challenge matches, you don't know what's coming at you. Yeah. And, you know, it could be the situation where you're wrestling just a bunch of local toughs. And, you know, if you're a skilled grappler and a physical beast like Jenkins, guess what? That's usually not going to be a problem. But then when you have to throw twice in an hour, a single man that the club provides, 
Who's that man going to be? What kind of shady shit are they going to pull? That's something you see almost nonstop in this in this show is back in the day. It was constantly a game of moves and counter moves trying to fuck the other guy over and fuck them up. Yeah, because it's either what it is is that they, they're agreeing to that because they're thinking that's the one way they can ensure that they have a matchup that's favorable for them by making sure the house provides them a matchup that they know is coming. But then now what they're doing is they're putting their eggs in that basket and setting it up where the house can double cross. It's a very, very tricky proposition because like you said, they don't know who's out there. You know, that, that going back to Farmer Burns earlier, that's how he made his, it made his first splash was coming in and being the guy in the crowd to, to be the guy that they didn't know that was out there that could hang with the best. Yeah, and then we saw that a lot when we covered the Goldust Trio is when you had this person kind of is the hot person or they hold the power. And then you have to be very careful about who you do business with in what way, because you could be like, you know, Joe Stetcher showing up to wrestle a guy and ends up being a different guy. And then they try to block the referee you brought from entering and they try to provide their own referee. So they're trying to fuck you twice. Or, you know, that poor bastard, Nate Pendleton, who took a match against a, you know, whoever shows up and it's, you know, John Pesek. So, yeah, this was a very dangerous game to play. So you have to really be trusting of everybody involved to make that agreement. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's a dicey proposition and it, it presupposes that they had a little bit of a trusting relationship going into it because otherwise they wouldn't be putting that much uh, risk on the line, you would imagine. Either that the only other option is he is that guy and he's just like, fuck it. I don't care who's there. I'm running over anyone and everyone. Line them up and I'm going to fucking knock them down. And there are certain guys at certain moments in time where I could see that that's what they wanted to do. But either way, this is a dubious proposition. On December 15th, 1899, the Detroit Free Press George Tui stated that from now on, Jenkins wouldn't wrestle anyone over 275 pounds. Quote, he claims that any man of this weight and of ordinary strength can wear out a first-class man of 190 pounds and, after tiring him out, turn him over and win. Not by superior wrestling, but by a tremendous advantage of weight. So, kind of the thing that we saw with both Turkish wrestlers that he had taken on, where everybody assumed and correctly so, that he was the better wrestler. But again, anybody who has wrestled, you know, like amateur legitimate wrestling or done jujitsu, judo, submission wrestling, you can have all the technique in the world. You could be black belt level technical, but if somebody has over a hundred pounds on you and is a solid blue belt, there is a good chance they're gonna wear you out. There, there's a reason most sports have weight classes and this is it. Classes matter because at the end of the day, it's about, you know, physics at the point of contact, right? And when the other person has that much more mass to bring to, to the equation, it's just, it's like racing a vehicle that has more horsepower and has a higher capability of, of top end speed. You know what I mean? It's, it's not an equal matchup, but you know, that's why it's always so, you know, and it's always so remarkable when you see that sort of David and Goliath story and the little guy wins. But yeah, truly speaking, it, uh, a 
mid to upper level heavyweight can potentially beat a really great lightweight or you know welterweight just because of the size difference. Absolutely. I mean, we saw that with guys like you know, like BJ Penn. His record would have been so different if he stuck to lightweight. <sighs> But he just insisted on going welterweight, even light heavyweight. So he was fighting guys. He was blo kind of bloating himself up to those weight classes and then, you know, not doing as well, even though, like, he was losing split decisions. Or, you know, similarly, you see in Japan, like, I remember when Vanderlei Silva um, completely naturally increased his weight so he could be a heavyweight, totally naturally, because it's Japan, to fight Krokop that second time in that heavyweight tournament. So, you know, you see, when you see a guy who tries to be like, cool, I am a natural 190 pounder, whether through staying at my own weight to wear them down or trying to bloat myself up for the weight class, fighting top guys much heavier than you, never a great idea, no matter how much fun it is sometimes with like an absolute tournament, but you know that's a whole different bag of bag of cats to, to to dissect. What the fuck am I even talking about? But I'm leaving that in there because it's fun nonsense. All right, fair enough. Although Chavo does not co-sign on dissecting cats. However, I will dissect this a little bit further because now think about it from the other side. When you do see someone every once in a while that can go up in weight classes and continue to dominate, that's when we see a great of that era, a Roy Jones, right? Or a Pacquiao. There's only certain guys that have been able to move up multiple weight classes and continue to dominate as they go up against that bigger and larger competition. And it's really, that's when you see someone who's truly a cut above is when they can do that consistently. Oh, absolutely. And that is something you do see in sports nonstop. You know, sometimes you have to choose business over the challenge. Totally. And that's something that Jenkins was smart to do. Because, you know what, everybody does admire the freak show match, the guy who steps up a weight class to take on the bigger man. But you know what also is a, is a pretty good decision? Not doing that, taking more competitive matches, and keeping your record looking better. Yeah, I mean, there, there is something admirable about putting the spirit of being a, a fighter who will fight anyone at any moment over the business acumen of like protecting your record and all of that, right? But at the end of the day, I mean, weight classes exist for a reason. And if you take too many losses, then you're not going to be the draw that you would be if you actually, you know, chose your opponents intelligently. And speaking of choosing your opponents intelligently, we're about to decide whether he did that for his next fight. From the Detroit Free Press, December 19th, 1899, Tom Jenkins versus Kara Osman. Osman was part of the Turkish invasion group that was brought to Paris in 1894, along with Yusuf Ismail. He was described as a Turkish wrestler who, quote, knows all the tricks of the profession, and one who does not depend upon main strength, awkwardness, and tremendous advantage in weight to save him from defeat or crush others out of existence, according to his manager, John A. Radigan. So already they're setting him up to be more of a legitimate skilled wrestler as opposed to being a big terrifying lout. Also, is that like the first ever mention of sort of like a wrestling heel faction? What they call them, like the invading Turkish? The, the Turkish invasion. Um, maybe in America, because yeah, they were shipping the terrible Turks as often as they could, pipelining over here for US tours. You know, you would see a lot more international click 
uh, group behavior at tournaments in Europe when, hey, you can have the Russians versus the French versus the the Lithuanians versus the Estonians, you know, where that was a little bit easier to do. But when you're bringing somebody so far away, so exotic, that's how you end up with terrible Turks being this, you know, this, this like almost small army of terrifying, swarthy foreigners coming to crush the Americans. One thing we do know about, like, from modern understanding of how things have evolved, Turkey can wrestle. Oh, absolutely. No, the, you know, the, Tur the Turkish like the wrestling. wrestle. Yeah, because the Turkish style of wrestling is so much different that it builds them very tough and very strong because you wear like, oh, you know, essentially leather breeches and then you oil, then you oil up because that removes the strength advantage unless the strength advantage is enormous. So you had to be so fucking strong to get your proper grip going in a Turkish oil wrestling match. Again, a lot of technique to it, but when you're oiled up, it makes the strength advantage so hard to press that you be everybody becomes almost a, a muscle monster. Yeah, it's a, and it's evolved into a hyper-technical style of wrestling, and, and Turkish wrestlers dominate the modern wrestling landscape, or they're one of the most uh, dominant countries in like you know Olympic competition and international competition. And you know, it's not surprising to me that they were one of the original foreign menaces because, like you said, the Turkish style of wrestling. I mean, basically, think of like oiled up sumo wrestling, where you got to grab the like diaper gimmick, right? But these guys are bad, and they're like in the mud and stuff. This is some. These are some seriously gnarly grapplers. And the match itself was equally strange. Quote. A crowd of rather small proportions gathered in the light guard armory to witness the match. The public evidently having failed to overcome the feeling of distrust that had been created in the past by fake wrestling matches. Those darn fake wrestlers ruining the draw for everyone. And the match ended with an injury as Osman was, quote, injured in the groin and the agony he suffered was so intense that he was forced to give up the struggle. It was claimed that the injury was a rupture, and it would be several weeks before he could wrestle again. And that does feel fairly legitimate because it wasn't like, you know, he lifted him up over his head and his knee gave out. It wasn't dramatic. It was a freaking groin pull, which, yes, is a horribly painful injury. You cannot continue a match with that thing. Um, so yeah, that feels very legit, but it also, you were having trouble selling tickets due to so many hippodromes in the area at the time. So even if you were putting together a shoot match or a hippodrome with a different worked finish than what actually happened, and then very quickly, a groin injury ends the whole thing, that's bad business for everyone. Yeah, the, at the end of the day, whether it was a work or a shoot, if the X's get thrown up, whatever whatever was going to play out is not how it ended up. But that is, I mean, that's one of those endings that you can almost guarantee was authentic because, frankly, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but I can't imagine anyone ever intentionally booking a finish of, like, oh, a groin injury. Yeah, it's it's, like, it'd it's be, too real. Yeah, it's too real, and it's not dramatic in an injury like a I broke my hand punching him so hard, yes. and then or it's 
the work a limb theory in worked wrestling where it's like you know work a guy's arm so long that the arm becomes useless and you know to see if he can come back from that one way or the other as opposed to that which i feel like for trying to have like a legitimate looking injury angle would have been best served by having somebody ringside eat a banana toss the banana peel onto the canvas and he slips on that and hits his head yeah i mean <laughs> yeah that would definitely get a little bit more of that reaction but man because it's uh that's one of those ones that just takes the steam out of the room, right? Like any, I mean, think about modern MMA. It's like one of the few things that's illegal. No matter what the fight is, it's like it could be blood. Oh, they're paying, they're trading. Ooh, nobody wanted to see that right in the right in the jubbies, Yeah, you know? or or yeah, or something it where like takes the soul out of the, the competition of it, the spirit of it. Yeah, or, or it's like two guys like putting on an absolute war and then somebody like just steps wrong and their knee goes out and the ref stops it and the doctor looks at it and the doctor examines it and talks to the coroner and then they finally wave it off. And there's just nobody... It's, it's no, anticlimactic, right? Yeah, nobody's going to leave the building feeling good and like being Satisfied. all pumped up. Yeah, yeah you're not going to yeah. leave like, fuck yeah, what a night. You'll be like, oh man, I, I didn't feel good seeing that. Yeah, those are, I mean, anyone who's ever been at a show where there has been a shoot gnarly injury to close the show, that definitely takes the wind out of the sails when you're leaving, no matter how good the entire show was. So I can't imagine that it was too likely a planned finish. So he did get the rematch on February 8th, 1900. Kara Osmond healed up, and the match took place in Cleveland. If you're expecting some sort of barn burner, we have a lot to prove type of thing, guess the fuck again. Because according to the Wilkes Bar Weekly Times two days later, it was a slow and long drawn out affair with the Turk yielding the battle to save himself a throw. So it was just a long, dull tug fest that eventually the Turk gave up because he realized he, was, he wasn't going to win it. So I feel like there was probably a good marketing push for a rematch. Everybody was excited to see this one be completed and they showed up to a snooze fest. Which again makes me think it was a shoot because, you know, two guys putting on a slow match with a non-finish and a forfeit doesn't exactly uh, sell tickets for the uh, the next one. Yeah, it's definitely not how you're gonna book the hot angle to get the return at the box office. I think, and also I think just like logically, it makes sense that the Turks are trying to, you know, they want to establish legitimacy. And if this guy was complaining that. I need to wrestle people under 275 pounds. And they're like, all right, well, here's your guy. Yeah, because they, they did, I feel once again, that the original Terrible Turk, Yusuf Ismail, that was a worked tour. And it was a very successful P.T. Barnum-esque worked circus sideshow uh, performance that dominated everywhere they went. And it was amazing and it was perfect. But then he drowned on the way back to uh, on the way back to the Ottoman Empire with the ship going down. Well, now you have the lesser Turks coming over. Well, now you can't really go back to the well twice with the same tactics because it's a you know they're smaller people even though they're giants. They have their own plans, different managers, lots of different variables. So you'll probably be seeing the equal amount of shoots and works and different personality clashes. Not having somebody like. 
you know, like with uh, like with the Evan Lewis and Yusuf Ismail one, where you have guys like William A. Brady and Parson Davies behind the scenes putting everything together. You don't always have the genius bookers or the genius promoters. So yeah, it was a little bit more chaotic, and chaos doesn't guarantee box office receipts. Yeah, and neither does diminishing returns of doing something over again just because it got over previously and then basically doing a watered-down derivative of the same thing. It's like they saw that the turk got over, now there's five turks, even though the first one drowned. And yes, and if you don't know what that reference was, you better go archive it, nerds. It's a fantastic story of piracy and jealousy and, and cannons. And so now Jenkins is one two and one against his against the invading Turks. Um, so we're now into the year 1900. We've kind of set the stage of his early life, the early part of his career, the ups, the downs, the wins, the losses, but he has now established himself as a top guy in the US. He's had matches with Tom Cannon, Farmer Burns, Yusuf Ismail. He is now getting very well known in the sport. And this is where we're gonna put a pin in things because this is gonna be a multi-part series. I really, really went insane with the research on this one, just so we could explore a lot of the different people who we've already covered in this era, seen from a different perspective, lots of tales of adventure. So strap the fuck in everybody because shit's gonna get wild. And, and on top of all that, my OCD is finally um, uh, satiated because we ended right at the end of the fucking 1899 to 1900. I've been waiting for three years for this, man. Where we finally end on a chronological, like, double zero. Like, we can put that away in the corner nice and neat. Thank you. You, he was waiting for it. Like, remember watching the screensaver on old DVD players where the little ball bounces on the screen but never quite hits the corner? That's what he's been going through. Um, so we're gonna get it back to uh, Tom Jenkins here in a couple of weeks with where things go from here. In the meantime, make sure to you know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, so long as Twitter still works and still exists by the time you hear this. Also on Instagram, I have so many headlines and articles and photos that I've been saving up for this series because they're all wild, they're crazy, they're fun, so I'll be posting all the old newspaper articles for you to see yourself. Um, again, if you ever feel like supporting our show, the Venmo is in the description. Every penny helps to buy books and buy access to these newspaper archives. But how do you like this story so far? Oh, this one's awesome. I love, I love it when it gives us a chance to get into the underpinnings and like, you know, the, the philosophy and the styles of matchups and all of that. This is such a great, sort of setting setting the table for where we're gonna go because we haven't even gotten into the meat of his story yet but it, it it sort of set the depth of the context and i think this was an awesome episode i agree and hopefully you agree you dear sweet listeners at home or in your car or are an adventure or being held hostage deep in a well but this is the only thing you have to entertain you i hope that's not the case but if it is Thanks for being here. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossard. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah, peace out, nerds. Cut Prince Martin. <laughs>